Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the Soundologia podcast, episode number three. Soundologia is where we have conversations about sound, arts, and technology. If you are interested in modern and experimental music, various sounds, unique sound experiments, and different approaches to sound perceptions, this is the place for you. As always, I am your host, Peja Kovacevic, and I would like to welcome you to the Soundologia platform and our podcast series. There are not that many sound artists in the world that create sculptures out of sound. They do not use clay or a similar material that most sculptures and ceramicists use to work with as a primary material. They work with different materials, considering all necessary scientific results from various research and detailed studies of space, time and natural occurring processes that produce sound. So even though sound is always at the heart of their studies, sound artists approach it from different angles, getting the final result similar to the one a real sculpture gets. Due to the use of light and all the effects that the space around the sound installation supplies, these sound artists tend to visualize sound and represent its visible elements. Today, I'm pleased to have the sound artist Alba Triana here at Soundologia, whose sound installations or sculptures are placed in museums worldwide. Her internationally featured artworks include sound and light sculptures, vibrational objects and resonating spaces. These are hybrid pieces that cross the boundaries of a diverse set of fields. Alba Triana has received so many awards here in the United States, as well as in Europe and Latin America. I will mention just a few, such as the Civitella Foundation Fellowship, Italy and United States, South Art State Fellowship, United States, IDCT National Composition Contents, National Electroacoustic Music Contest, Otto de Graeff, National Contest, and French Aliens Best Exhibition of the Year Award. In addition, she was recognized by some of the most prominent ensembles and music institutions who commissioned her work and provided residencies and grants. Some of them are Kronos Quartet, Pro Helvetia from Switzerland, American Composers Forum, Olit Arts, and the Ministry of Culture from Colombia. Furthermore, Triana's work has been featured internationally in Paris, France, Barcelona, Spain, Colombia, Mexico, and so on. She has participated in festivals such as Futura Synthese France and Zilele Musicili Noi Moldova. Her work also belongs to art collections in Europe, Latin America and the United States, including the Otazu Collection 2020, Arco Prize for Collecting, as well as the Banco de la Repubblica de Colombia. Some of her sound installations found a place in the book Sensing Sound, Singing and Listening as Vibrational Practice by Musicologist Nina San Eisheim. Hello, Alba. Good to hear at Soundologia. How are you? Hello, Peja, and uh, thank you for having me. 
Yeah, a lot of achievements. I see <laughs> it was a long reading, but the, really there are impressive biography, a lot of work behind you. Thank you. You were a guest at the UCLA Peer Labs pop-up lab series. Actually, I had a chance to watch the, the session and uh, get familiar more with your work. And before we get started talking about your work, I would like you to tell us something about your background and development as an artist. Uh, you earned bachelor's degree in Colombia in music compositions uh, and became a Fulbright scholar later. Uh, then you receive a double uh, emphasis master's degree in composition, new media and integrated media at California Institute of the Arts. You also continue your PhD studies at the University of California, San Diego for music composition. So really impressive educational background. And what was the critical moment for you to start working with sound installations that differ from the usual compositor's works and writing pieces for concert calls? Well, as you're mentioning, I uh, had an education in the music composition field. Actually, I started um, studying music since I was very little. But since I was little, I also had a very, uh, uh, you know, a, an education in other art fields. Probably the center was music, but I was also you know, my parents really emphasized different forms of art and uh, science and mathematics. Uh, uh, so I started my career as a musical composer, basically because I was trained uh, uh, to be a composer. Uh, but I always felt the need to work in a more holistic, um, cross-disciplinary fashion. But uh, it was difficult for me, you know, I did some collaborations, I did some uh, cross-disciplinary artworks, but um, at that time, you know, my career as a composer was picking up and I just continued to work mostly as a composer. Uh, and at some point I had a personal event uh, that prevented me from writing music. And uh, during that period of time, I couldn't work. And uh, uh, since I couldn't work, I decided to hire an assistant. And uh, I just decided to do uh, things that I wanted to do that I couldn't do before because I didn't have to, the time to do it. And uh, during this process, I really allowed myself to go as far as I wanted with my curiosity. And I realized that I had deep questions that I sometimes I couldn't even articulate. Uh, and during that period, which I thought I wasn't working, uh, gradually in a very organic way, I realized that I actually was in a creative process and that a new body of um, work was emerging. So at some point, I just realized that I was producing a new body of work and I just uh, loved it. I, it was more authentic. And ever since, I continued to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, your artistic philosophy relies on the explanation of the inherent intelligence of nature. How do you see the connection between sound and nature? And do you consider nature of sound as everything surrounding humans? You know, as I said uh, before, 
when you ask me about how I uh, transition from writing um, concert music to uh, installation or sculptural uh, artwork. Uh, during that period in which I was experimenting and when I thought I wasn't working, I realized that I had deep questions. But at that time, I couldn't articulate those questions. And then uh, as I ran the experiments and as later as I realized that I was actually creating artwork, I started realizing that what I was doing was doing like a deep observation of nature. I have been ever since, I've been uh, observing nature at a fundamental level. And when I say that I'm uh, observing nature at a fundamental level, what I mean is that I'm uh, working with materials that uh, apply for everything. And one of those materials is vibration. Mm -hmm. Everything in the physical world can be reduced to a vibrational state. Everything vibrates and sound is just a, a, a form of vibration. And uh, uh, so I realized that uh, by exploring vibration, I'm basically exploring nature. Uh, I realized that I was uh, interested in working with different forms of vibration and uh, Later on, and maybe we can discuss about this um, when we uh, talk about the, the pieces, pieces yeah. mm -hmm. I realized that music is in the objects, in mm -hmm. the physical objects. That, uh, for example, when I work in, in pieces, like, for example, the Resonant Bodies series of works, I have realized that when I excite an object with energy, and to and when I listen how the object uh, sounds, uh, the whole history of music is inside the object. And for me, that has been mind blowing, you know. And that's something that I have uh, found while working in, in the creation of my works. So, for example, in in the pieces where I work with symbols or with a, a string quartet, uh, or with different types of uh, objects, even everyday objects like the pool motor, you can hear that uh, when the object uh, vibrates, you hear med melodies, you hear complex textures. So the whole history of music, of all geographies, all historical periods are in is inside the objects. And for me, that has been one of the things that I feel that I have, uh, I don't know if the word is discovered, but uh, at least I have become more aware of uh, through my creative practice. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so there is definitely a very uh, intimate relationship between the fact that we compose music and how nature behaves at a, a micro level. Right. That's why we have the difference between listening and hearing that you are talking about. That everything that surrounded us actually can produce some sound but we, that we can hear. But if we can listen to it carefully, we can hear different elements, parameters that, that objects create. Exactly. And that, that's something that 
you know, I would like to, for example, discuss about the piece that is now being shown at the Museum of Modern Art of Bogota in my solo show, mm -hmm. because I'm having this uh, piece that maybe we can discuss later, but even I'm bringing musicians to uh, amplify the music that uh, emerges from this object that I'm exciting with energy. What is the period that uh, you were talking about when you shifted from that concert settings to the installation format and started making the transition in, in your uh, over? When I started working as a composer, uh, simultaneously, I did some uh, multidisciplinary multi uh, performances, so uh, pieces that involved different forms of art. But uh, in year 2008, I started doing some interactive installations. And after that, I had a period of time in which I couldn't compose for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But since 2010, I completely uh, adopted, uh, fully adopted uh, installation format. And uh, I have created some uh, concert music pieces, but for example, the Kronos Quartet piece I, I created because it was an important com commission, but not because at that moment I was uh, creating a uh, concert music. Let's uh, touch upon some artists, composers, uh who inspired your work from the music world, but also maybe other arts. When we talked before the show uh, about some composers, you mentioned Lemont Young and his piece, Well-Tuned Piano, Yanis Xenakis' work, uh, Alvi Luciero was also important person uh, for you. So can you just say something about those artists and I assume that they are approached uh, frequency specter and to get that frequency specter broaden and their research also inspired your work. Yes, uh, for me, whenever I get asked what are the uh, artists or composers that inspire my work, it's very difficult because it's very difficult because it involves the whole history of music and not only Western music. Uh, uh, for example, since, you know, I, I can go back, I don't know when, but uh, I, I, composers like Machol, for example, uh, mm -hmm. Monteverdi, uh, Bach, which I think it's one of the composers that really influenced my work because I think it's a more universal exploration. I'm very interested in doing a more universal exploration and other and other types of music that are not Western music. But uh, talking specifically about these composers, especially I think uh, Yanis Senakis has been uh, extremely influential in my work. I find his work fascinating. I believe that Yanis Senakis, being a composer, an architect, and a mathematician, uh, had a fascinating, deep, extremely deep interest in the universe. You know, we may uh, 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 see Senakis only uh, as an exploration of music, but I think when you really know his music, you know how deep he explores how uh, the universe um, uh, self-organizes. Uh, and his use of stochastic techniques are, for me, incredibly profound. 
and fascinating. So I always have been very intrigued and interested in his work. And also there are other composers like Jacinto Chelsea, uh, Alvin Lucier, and um, Lamont Young, for example, mm -hmm. who pioneered in the exploration of acoustics. And um, I'm very interested in, uh, in uh, those acoustic phenomena. Initially, actually, uh, they, that I was really influenced uh, by them. And I started working with acoustic phenomena. And, and later on, I started realizing that uh, for me, Acoustic is, is a part of something that is actually bigger. And that's why I allowed myself to expand to other uh, ways of interactions between uh, different types of waves or uh, waves and spaces, uh, not only in what is heard, but perceived through other senses. Exactly. Before we start speaking about music, uh, tell me, uh, what role does technology play in your creative process and what role does science also play? How is the science important for your work? For me, technology is a tool. Uh, I never, when I work in a piece, I never think in technological terms. Uh, it, it is not that I'm interested in a technique or a device and then I start thinking about the work. My quest is an artistic quest. And then when I have uh, a question uh, or something that I really want to explore, the tools come later, the techniques come later. Uh, and I use whatever tools of techniques uh, I require to explore my ideas. And sometimes I use uh, state-of-the-art technologies and sometimes I use obsolete technologies. Uh, it doesn't really matter, for example, um, in this show that I have right now or my later artistic production, I've been working with electromagnetism and I'm using coils and circuits, which are very old technologies, but uh, it is not about the technologies, it's about the exploration. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of the uh, science, science is something uh, that really informs my practice. And uh, so I've worked uh, a lot with scientists actually, since 2018, I've been uh, supported by the Swiss government, by Prohelvetia, which is the Swiss Arts uh, Council. And uh, I've had the opportunity to work closely with uh, world-class scientists. But it, 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 science is something that informs my practice as other disciplines, uh, like for example, philosophy or engineer or uh, design. So I allowed whatever area of human knowledge to explore the project. Is, is the project what tells me what I need to do? It is not me making decisions. Is the work that tells me uh, I need to do research about this scientific uh, topic or uh, talk to an electronic engineer or, uh, you know, uh, whatever interaction outside of the musical world and I just go ahead and do it. That's actually 
brings me to the next question to ask you how do you tend to start a piece do you have a general approach to the artwork or do you always make different first steps you mentioned that you made some exploration at the beginning research how to approach to the object so what steps do you make usually okay uh, there is something that is very important for me uh, that is not to keep repeating myself or not to keep repeating something that others have been doing sometimes uh, mm -hmm. interestingly. Uh, so what I do is uh, when I, for me, it is very important to feel that when I'm doing work, I'm expanding something. I'm bringing something to the field. So, and I, I'm full of ideas. I have many, many, many ideas for my works. I keep a notebook uh, with the ideas organized, classified by uh, areas of research or areas of exploration. And then, you know, I get commissions, I get projects. And when there is a project, I uh, or when there is not a project, I select what is the next exploration. But sometimes I cannot know exactly what I want to explore. I just have, I may have a more general idea. And, and once, once I have uh, that idea, uh, I start a process of research and experimentation. And sometimes uh, I work with a, in, at my studio with a team of people, and sometimes we fail. We run a bunch of experiments and we get nothing. That's fine. It's part of the process. How do you feel when, when you fail? I feel the same as if I didn't fail. Because <laughs> for me, I'm in love with the process. For me, being an artist is about... A, it's a process of exploration. So if I get nothing or if I get something, I'm getting this um, a deeper understanding of a bigger, you know, it's I'm trying to understand or to explore something that is really big, that is very difficult for me to put into words. So when I know that this doesn't work, it's fine. Sometimes, for example, with one of the pieces that I finished uh, this year, it takes me 10 years to be able to do what I wanted. So uh, this year I finished one piece that I started trying to do 10 years ago, <laughs> but I did it 10 years 10, uh, 10 years later, that's completely fine. So uh, I, I go through a period of experimentation and at some point I either find when I, what I'm looking for or I find something else that is fascinating. Uh, I, I know where to start. I don't know where I'm going to end. And when I find this material that I'm moved by it, that I'm fascinated by it, then I start a creative process. And my creative processes are very, very long. I'm talking about just the creative aspect. Uh, usually I work in a piece uh, four hours a day, four to uh, five hours a day. And sometimes it can take me uh, a full year, one year and a half, five months. Uh, but usually the processes, especially when I need to develop pieces that unfold in time, uh, the process is very long. Uh, when I have pieces that uh, unfold in time, but I, it's not like a composition in time, sometimes the process uh, is faster. But I just, as I said before, I really respect uh, my works and I really allow the work to 
tell me what it needs. So I finish the work when the work is finished. Not because I have a deadline or anything like that. I just allowed myself to work. And there is one day that I know this is finished. If, the, if I feel that the work is not finished, I keep working. Right. And I have to say something else mm -hmm. uh, that I feel that the, the whole creative process of a piece also it is completed when I have it uh, interacting with the public. So there's also a very important uh, aspect, which is showing the pieces, installing the pieces correctly, presented the pieces with the best conditions that I can. And uh, uh, now I'm really focusing on getting the best documentation because now with the social media and all the uh, digital platforms, I have realized that the works exist mostly in their documentation. Just a, a small audience can see the works in person because, you know, people cannot travel. Not everybody can travel. So I, for me, that's the full creative process when the, the pieces exist and are presented to the public. Before we jump into your sound installations, uh... Let's speak about the city where you and I live, that's Miami. And uh, given that in this podcast season, uh, I interview artists who live and create uh, here in Miami, I always ask them uh, to share their opinion uh, on Miami's uh, cultural scene and talk about opportunities experimental artists may have here. Do you feel uh, uh, this city is a complex and demanding place to be an independent artist? And what kind of opportunities does Miami offer to experimental artists? Yes, I think it's very complex. Mm -hmm. uh, Miami is a very nice city. Mm -hmm. I love it. I think it's beautiful. But I moved to Miami for personal reasons. I didn't move to Miami for professional reasons. And... Uh, uh, the experimental art scene is very small, especially, uh, for example, experimental music or sound art is extremely, it's an extremely uh, small community. We can count, you know, I can invite my colleagues to a party and exactly. maybe <laughs> 20 people <laughs> or something like that. So that is very challenging. Uh, it's interesting that Miami is a city that is very developing very fast. And uh, especially the visual arts, uh, there are a lot of opportunity for visual artists, but those opportunities are very related uh, to the history of visual arts in the United States. Mm -hmm. So there, there is a very formed understanding of uh, what creating art is. And there are like a very clear trends with a very clear uh, explorations. So for example, for an artist like me, who doesn't follow trends, because I don't follow trends. I, I try to create my own trend. It is difficult because curators are and artists are very much in sync on what uh, exploration, what being an artist or being a, even a musician or even, for example, in Miami, the experimental sound is seen, even, which is small. There is an understanding among my colleagues what that may mean, but I don't even do that. 
<laughs> so I feel that I'm alternative inside the alternative. So yes, it's challenging. <laughs> yeah, it's challenging. Totally, totally agree. It's unbelievable how this city is big, but you're absolutely right that community is really small. And what I can add, uh, because I already have uh, almost a full list of my uh, upcoming guests and the guests that I uh, had the chance to speak before and uh, record a show to make episodes, each of them does unique, unique work. And that is something that fascinated me. Everybody finds their unique place to experiment, even uh, because there are so many challenges here. And uh, what is interesting also that most of artists have uh, some place or home countries that they nurture the connection with, keeping the traditions, arts like you. So you are originally from Colombia, which is apparent in your work and installations and have had so many exhibitions there. Uh, you have mentioned the connection with you, your home country even after moving to the United States. How essential is it for you as an artist to keep the relation with your home country? I've kept a very strong relationship with my country, basically because uh, here I get very nice opportunities. Uh, uh, I select my opportunities to show my work when I can do a good job. I, I like when I get the conditions to do a good job. So here I get that. And also I feel that uh, Bogota, which is the capital, uh, is a huge city, around 10 million people. Uh, it's uh, this type of city, Latin American capital, that is uh, this topic and extremely interesting and extremely active where culture is taken uh, very, very se uh, seriously. And uh, actually here, there is a big um, experimental music, contemporary music and sound art community. So, uh, of course, I love my country, but I also enjoy uh, this uh, activity, uh, you know, and interactions and different trends. So there are people doing uh, fascinating operas, uh, following more a more European trad uh, tradition. For example, a couple of weeks ago, there was a fascinating project uh, from a fellow a composer, but there are other people following other trends, uh, like more uh, the John Cage uh, line of exploration and other people doing new things. And there are many sound artists, young sound artists, young composers in the same city. There are, you know, the last time I, I've I heard of these 13 music composition programs, and I'm not counting the sound art programs in the visual art uh, departments at different universities. So I feel that uh, there is a lot of uh, activity, a lot of uh, exchange of ideas, and I really enjoy that. Uh, was any of your works inspired by your immigration to the United States, maybe? I'm not sure. I usually have questions that are more universal. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not uh, usually exploring social issues, although I feel that exploring these more universal issues are related to the society. 
even though at, at first you may think that they are not. And uh, of course, being an immigrant, probably I could say that when, you know, when I studied here in Colombia, many of the artists from Latin America that go to uh, developed, more developed countries to study, they end up following the trend that they find in this country. So a lot of uh, composers who go to France, they are exploring French spectralism. Composers who go to the United States, they work in the John Cage uh, Fluxus uh, tradition, or they, if they go to Germany, they follow the Lachemann's uh, influence. But something that I, I really wanted to do ever since I came to the U.S. is that I didn't want it to do that. <laughs> I didn't want to incorporate a, my exploration to... I, I, I just don't feel that it belongs to me. And I, I just allowed to, myself to do uh, whatever I feel that I need to explore. But I don't like to explore what others are already exploring or have already explored so I prefer just to, to do my own thing. And when we speak about your originality, uh, what can you say when you compare uh, the reception uh, that your exploration and installations receive in Colombia to the receptions you receive here in the United States and worldwide in Italy, Switzerland, Moldova? It really depends. I feel that here in, in Latin America, my work is very well received uh, in Europe too. You know, when I go to Europe, uh, uh, there is a very serious experimentation. And, uh, you know, uh, in, in some European countries, there are used to being rigorous. And I consider myself a rigorous uh, person. So uh, I get nice projects actually uh, in Europe. Uh, but also in the U.S. right now, I, I cannot say because they, I have been asked to keep my the, the major projects that I'm working on confidential mm -hmm. by the museums I'm working with. But uh, I feel that uh, depending on the city, it can be a very good reception or more sub superficial depending on, on the area. And it varies a lot in the United States because... In the U.S., not in every city, in, not in every city, there is like um, the, uh, an interest for for what we do. You know, is not a very spread as in other cities where they are very used to that. But in general, I feel that uh, my work is received uh, very nicely when I present. I have to say that. Some of your music works from 10 and 20 years ago include compositions written for solo instruments. Uh, for example, the piece Antiphona from 2010 explores the resonance potential of the cello instrument. Uh, contrary expressive features, non-discernible materials in contrast with clearly identifiable ones and different harmonic and colors palettes that you explored in that piece. Was it's solely an evolution of your work if we compare Antiphona for Violoncello from 2000 with the Resonant Bodies series, Music for Four Resonators from 2016. Yes, I think that is very interesting. Uh, Antiphona is a piece from uh, the 2000s, you know, year 2000. And uh, at that time, I was still a student at CalArts. I was doing my master's. And... Uh, 
I was very interested in the resonating properties of the instrument. So when I composed the piece, uh, you know, the, the, the musician, the cellist, excites the instrument either with the bow or with uh, the pizzicatos or, you know, with his hands. But I'm a very, I was very interested in doing, composing the music during the resonance of the instrument. And uh, now, today, I am extremely interested in the resonating properties of uh, musical instruments or other objects and the resonating properties of uh, objects and matter. So I feel that in a way that uh, uh, when I composed Antiphona, those interests uh, were emerging and I wasn't uh, so aware of what they were at that time. But with time, I um, started uh, shaping them. And, and right now, I feel that I have a very clear understanding of what my quest is. We came to uh, the first piece uh, that is Music for Four Resonators from 2016, the commission by Kronos Quartet. So we can actually hear the sound and after that talk about it. Let us know more about the series of works called Resonant, uh, Resonant Bodies. What stands behind it? So the Resonating Bodies series of works explore the notion that at a micro level, everything in the physical body, in the physical world vibrates. Where you are, where the listeners are everywhere, things are constantly vibrating. Even if we perceive our table as, as solid, it is internally active. There is a vitality of matter and everything is internally active. So uh, in these uh, works, what I do is that I usually use a, a musical instrument, although right now I'm working with 
regular objects do. And I excite those uh, instruments with energy. And uh, I excite them with energy to activate their resonant modes. The resonant modes are their intrinsic and natural vibrations, the modes in which the object naturally vibrates. And uh, when I get to hear those vibrations that are intrinsic to the object, I explore all the ways in which the object uh, resonates. And then with those natural vibrations, I create a composition in time and in space. Usually in space, the Kronos Quartet piece, you know, it was a concert piece, but um, the other pieces that I have created in this series are also installations. So that is ba the basic idea of this series of works. The series is quite interesting because you problematize a couple of elements, the sound of the resonator, the multi-voice sound of uh, an instrument, uh, secret sound and frequencies that the mic and transducer can pick up. Uh, how do you, I, I saw the pictures of when the Kronos Quartet, uh, uh, artists from Kronos Quartet perform. I didn't uh, hear and I didn't see uh, their recordings, but there is a video on YouTube with you performing the piece. How do you allow a performer to exploit the potential of the instruments, fundamental resonance modes and properties and uh, Maybe I can ask you, where is the space or room for improvisation? I am the one who does the experimentation and the exploration. And then I give the pre-digested uh, materials to the performer. Uh, and uh, as I said before, I did this concert uh, piece music for the Kronos Quartet, but uh, the other pieces are installations where I am the one who are making the decisions about uh, the work. I'm very interested regarding the improvisation that you're asking. I'm very interested in um, uh, how nature self-organizes. Uh, I'm very interested in chance and uh, I'm in randomness, but um, I'm a little bit uh, like Senakis. I don't see improvisation really related to chance, how randomness uh, operates in the natural world. For me, improvisation is more related, as the uh, Senakis used to say, to being spontaneous. So in my, for example, in Music for Four Resonators, which is the piece for the Kronos Quartet, it is impossible for me to write a composition, to create a composition, because the instruments behave differently depending on the atmospheric conditions. So they don't resonate the same at different times of the day, or if they are already activated, they resonate differently than if they are just started being activated. One of uh, generated uh, works that you mentioned uh, is for sure sounding score, I would say, yes. that we will not speak about today, but uh, all listeners can find uh, this piece and all other pieces uh, on your website, uh, albatriana.com, that is uh, posted in uh, the description uh, of this episode. And when you're talking about the score, what is the score like for this uh, series? I actually like very much the traditional score, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though my scores, you know, when people see them, they think that they don't look like a traditional score. The structure or the way they function 
I, I find that useful for me. So even for the installations, for all the pieces that unfold in time, I keep, for example, the timeline, you know, the, the evolution in time. I keep measures, I keep uh, sections uh, and double bars or, or bars to identify where the sections are. And um, for example, in the piece for the Kronos Quartet, I used symbols because I need to. I needed to describe to them with actions what they needed to do. Uh, and also there were uh, things that were uh, described with words, but I kept the timeline, you know, like the time writing, you know, or uh, in the score. And um, I also used uh, videos, you know, maybe people who have seen excerpts of uh, this work have seen me performing. And these were the videos that I used for to show them what they had to do. And so, for example, in a piece like this, where it wasn't an improvisation for them, I wanted to give them a guided improvisation. I used the score, I used the videos, and we also met in person. I we had to travel to San Francisco and then we met here in Bogota to practice because for them it was like a little bit like learning how to play a new instrument because they never used their bows or they almost never touched the instruments uh, because they are mostly activating the instruments to hear the acoustic space and the resonating properties of the objects, of the instruments. Uh, and in other pieces from the Resonant Bodies series, where I have used symbols, you know, right now I'm doing the third symbol piece, I keep uh, the score the you know the timeline and i just uh, record in time the wave properties that i'm manipulating right the last question regarding uh, resonant bodies so when we watch the video you created and listen to the uh, sound uh, you have the mic in your hand and transducer if i'm correct right you're using both transducer and mic at the same yes. time so that's it provides you like uh, the plenty of sounds and frequencies to pick up at the same time. Do you use any effects like to get reverb or delay nothing. or nothing? Nothing. My work is not about simulating the natural world. I don't wanna ornament anything. I have I you know when I did that piece. I rented a string. I was in Miami actually, and I rented one string quartet, a different string quartet a week. So for six months, I was uh, exploring a different set of instruments each week before uh, doing the composition. And uh, what I wanted to do or uh, what, uh, how I wanted the system to work was to actually hear the resonating properties of the object. I tried to keep the signal as clean as possible because my interest is in revealing what is inside the resonators, what is inside the instrument. So with the symbols, for example, I always ask now that I have the exhibition at the museum, what is the music that you're playing? And I, I always say, no, I'm not playing any music. It is the symbol. 
or if it is the violin, I'm interested in hearing its resonating properties. And after testing uh, several um, string quartet tests in a very methodic way, like a scientist, I recorded in in paper, you know, in the computer, not in paper, but, you know, like in a chart, the different uh, behaviors of the violins or the viola or the cello. I uh, studied a lot about how builders, you know, the luthiers build the instrument. And then I, I got, I think I got a very good understanding of how what are the how the those instruments work uh, in terms of their resonating properties and for me you know I, th those things are always fascinating for example i realized that the violins usually uh, have emphasized resonant modes that tend to be major like a major mode where whereas the cello emphasize a minor mode. So after testing many cellos and many violins and many violas, then I understood, oh, that's why when we hear a cello playing, we feel this melancholic character. Even if a violin and the cello play the same melody, we are gonna hear a different character. And the a character uh, is embedded in the resonating properties of the instrument which uh, and that i found fascinating for example the viola had a different type of resonating properties and that uh, those resonating properties are resonate are responsible for the character of the music that is being played uh, and uh, you know I don't know if what I'm discover is important or, or not, but when I find it for me is, or when I experienced it for me is, you cannot imagine what is uh, the, my process of working at my studio is, uh, I'm in a constant state of awe, uh, fascinated by what I experience and what, what I find when I'm uh, doing these uh, pieces. Great. From strings, uh, instruments, uh, violin, uh, uh, cello that uh, you uh, explored, we are moving to vibrational structure of cymbal that is actually the percussion metal instrument and the sound installation called Microcosmos. And this is really the real sculpture and one, one of my favorite projects that we are discussing today. Uh, that is the vibrational sculpture where energy is used to explore a fundamental notion. All physical bodies are perpetually vibrating even when they appear to be perfectly still. These pieces, because of this drone and circulating movement and dramaturgy that the symbol creates by itself, can be achieved only if you have the good loudspeakers, loud system at home or using good uh, headphones. Before we hear the project, please explain me uh, the process of creating this installation. How did you get the vibration? At what primary source triggered the symbol to vibrate? Yes, uh, so in this piece, there is a, a symbol which is at the center of a space and I'm activating the symbol with energy. And um, 
Basically, what happens is that the symbol starts resonating naturally. Nobody touches the symbol. For me, it is not about imposing some rhythms to the instrument, but as I said before, about revealing what exists inside the instrument. And uh, of course, there were many challenges when creating this piece. I had to do a lot of experimentation uh, until I was able to truly excite the instrument. And I discovered, for example, that, and this happens with all these pieces, that there is a bunch of sonic material. There is a huge, that is why, why it is called microcosmos, because there is a huge sonic world inside each object. But of course, I, I want to do a coherent uh, piece. So I, I just use, let's say, one or two modes. I cannot use everything because I, I don't want to just be all over the place. And um, there are challenges because it's difficult to deal with the public. It's difficult because everybody, when they see that the symbol is uh, resonating, everybody wants to touch the symbol and to hold it and to see if it is true that it is the instrument that is resonating. The objects interact with the environment, especially, you know, the second symbol piece that I'm showing right now is very sensitive to the atmospheric conditions. So uh, that is challenging and that presents stability issues for an exhibition that is going to be up for five months. And also I had to uh, really explore what is the con sonic microcosmos inside the instruments. And in all these instruments, I have found traditional melodies that could uh, belong to any geographical area to any historical period with um, tuning changes depending on the atmospheric conditions. But uh, that has me, for me, has been mind blowing. And I can even find contemporary music. I, I have an anecdote when I was creating a microcosmos. One day I was in my studio in Miami working with the symbol and my husband, who is also a composer, came to the room and asked me, this sounds like Chelsea. And I said, no, this is not Chelsea. This is the symbol. Chelsea is also in the objects. And uh, the more I work, I realized that the music is really in the objects. And um, maybe later on, we can speak a little, a little bit more about this and, and why now I'm adding these sound interventions to the installation, because that's something that I'm doing right now is that other people amplify the music that I, they are hearing inside the instrument.
The cymbal creates a drone sound that uh, progresses over time, becoming a very complex sound at the end. So how do you stop the sound of cymbal? What actually makes cymbal to end? There are two things. First, the composition repeats as a loop. So uh, it is composed in a way that it is like a circular form. So it evolves, it gets very excited and then it goes back gradually and that is achieved compositionally it goes back to the beginning and it naturally loops so the sound doesn't stop 
But let's say when the, the, the exhibition comes to an end, at the end of the day, I just stop sending energy and it stops vibrating. And then you see the symbol, but without uh, those amplified vibrations, you just see a symbol. But when I send the energy, when I activate the, uh, the symbol with energy, it starts resonating and you start seeing how it moves and you start hearing those vibrations. When we talk about microcosmos, I have to look over your other piece called harmonic motion or movement harmonico in Spanish. It's quite provocative work as some atmospheric condition and position of the sun have some consequences, repercussions and effects on your installation. So please uh, tell us some differences between microcosmos and harmonic motion and what those type of uh, atmospheric and environmental condition affects your work and uh, installation within the museum space. Yes, it, it was about harmonic motion, which is the next a symbol piece which is being shown right now at the Museum of Modern Art of Bogota. In that work, I developed a technique that allowed me not only to hear the resonant modes, which I had already done in Music for Four Resonators and Microcosmos, but also to see those vibrations. And what was very sensitive, I'm using lasers to see the vibrations of the symbol. Mm -hmm. I'm using a, a technique uh, with lasers. And uh, what happened at the studio, right before, uh, three weeks before the opening of the show, is that every morning we got to the studio and all the lasers had moved. We couldn't understand that, why, and I was, of course, stressed out because I needed the piece to be stable at the museum. And then we realized that when the temperature goes up, the ceiling in my studio expands and the lasers are installed in the ceiling. And when the temperature goes down, it contracts. And the lasers, since I'm working in a millimetric way, you know, I need the laser to be pointing to a very specific point in the symbol. Uh, if it moves three millimeter or four millimeters, everything gets lost. So we realize that uh, even if the, with those expansions of the materials like the ceiling, it could create big changes in, the, in how the piece looks. But this was more related to the visual manifestation of the vibrations. But for example, in the Kronos uh, Quartet piece, the string quartet instruments were extremely sensitive to the temperature or, or humidity. So let's say that I, I knew that this instrument main mode was X frequency, but if it got too cold, let's say uh, the frequency could move 
a quarter of a tone or it could move out a lot or even I could stop hearing a tone that I knew that it is there when it is excited. So things can vary greatly. project or the third installation is interactive musical instrument uh, electronic gamelan from 2008 interactive musical instrument which allows the public to transform the timbre sound quality of a musical piece uh, sliding the shadows of their hands over a light emitting table uh, very interesting there is a video on youtube i love really the gamelan instrument and that sounds is always uh, inspiring to hear and it's great that you Alba was inspired also by that uh, traditional Asian instrument to use uh, as a model uh, and generate uh, through Max for Life actually not Max for Life, Max MSP software 
Although Electronic Gamelan is the project you created in 2008, I think we should mention it here. Uh, how did you start creating this piece? Did the idea come from your experiences immersing yourself in Max MSP software? Uh, well, as I said before, for me, the process never starts from a technological tool. I was very interested, actually, that was my first installation. And at that time, I, I was very interested in uh, exploring a different type of uh, musical experience that was not a concert. And one of the things uh, that I was uh, interested in uh, is related to what I told you before, is that I find the process, the creative process, fascinating. And I feel that the public usually uh, has access to a result. Uh, which, you know, the, the public uh, usually has a more passive role. But uh, when, when we perform music or when we create music, it's a kind of different type of musical experience, uh, engaging the creativity and feeling the musicality, for example. Uh, it's, a, it's a completely different type of experience. So I wanted to provide some of that to the public. Uh, but uh, I, I wanted to create a piece, you know, I'm a composer, I'm an artist, I needed the piece to stand by itself, even if the public is intervening the work. So I wanted to make sure that the piece uh, sounds good with all endless, infinite possibilities of actions that the public uh, can decide to, to make. But I wanted them to engage the, their creativity and their musicality and their intuition. So I, uh, what I did is that I composed a musical piece. Uh, there is a table in the middle of the space and there is like an orchestra of nine speakers surrounding the instrument. I wanted the installation to be like a, a, a sort of resonant box. I wanted the the public to feel that they are in inside an instrument, like when you are inside of, you know, the resonant box of a piano. So the public, as they slide the shadows of the hands, something that is a very simple actions over a light emitting tribes, they transform the uh, timbral color of the composition, actually more like the, it's like a sort of orchestration of the piece. They could manipulate that. And my work as a composer was to make sure that the piece could stand the infinite possibilities and the public, the public could con uh, had control over that. And this piece has a very detailed exploration of the space uh, in terms of how sound moves throughout the nine speakers. So I feel that this being my first installation work, it already shows things that later on became very important for me. Like for example, space, which in my last work, Harmonic Motion, was explored extremely in a very detailed way. I, I really took space seriously in the current exhibition. And I'm right now, I'm really focusing on working in the space-time dimension without making any of those uh, dimensions separate, but to understand them as one dimension. So in Electronic Gamelan, I started follow that path. <laughs>
uh, I actually wanted to ask you why did you choose uh, nine speakers uh, to set in the museum space? Uh, was it intentional, like, or not? Yes, uh, it was intentional. I wanted to create, like, you know, like an orchestra. I use the word orchestra because inside the nine speakers, I'm dividing the speakers as an orchestra. You know, when you're when you're orchestrating a piece, you have things that a musician call choirs. So, for example, if you are composing for orchestra, you may decide that you're going to use the string section or a, a, a string quartet inside the the orchestra that you are treating treating kind of independently inside of the composition. So here, the nine speakers operate as a whole, but also there are choirs and there are three choirs, three speakers on the left, three speakers on the right and three speakers on the back, which simultaneously they are working together, but they are working inside as a group. Divided, as are they divided by frequency spectra or, or not? No, they are mostly divided by timbre mm-hmm. and by the behavior of the spatialization. So, for example, as you may know, or I don't know if the listeners know, uh, in the gamelan, uh, they use this technique that is called hocketing. Hocketing means that a musical line, it is not played fully by one musician, but it is distributed among the different uh, musicians, which I feel that in gamelan and also in the African hockets is a very interesting uh, exploration of spatialization of sound played by musicians. So I was fascinated by the idea of the hocket, uh, and I really wanted to explore that, inspired by the gamelan, explore that in the, in the piece. So the sound is like um, a motor rhythm. You know, there are individual tones that are being played constantly, and they move around the space. So each tone, every time the tone is uh, sounds, it is played in a different speaker. And usually they run trajectories. This is, listeners won't be able to perceive this in the recording. You had to be in the space to perceive that. Uh, but for example, the whole orchestra, sometimes the trajectory, the sound goes around, hockets. It's hocketing around the visitor or the audience who are at the center. It is going around and sometimes they are going around inside the choirs, uh, inside just these three speakers or these other three speakers and then all of them communicate. So there is an extremely detailed treatment of the spatialization of sound in that uh, work. And as I said before, we identify the choirs uh, like in an orchestra also by timbre. So each choir has an identity in terms of a timbre. But unfortunately, that is not perceived in the stereo recording that listeners will have available. What do you do with uh, your installations after the exhibitions like Electro Gamelan? Are they still uh, there available? to be seen, to be checked, to be tested? Yes, you know, the, the thing with these installations is that these works exist when they are installed. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they are in my physical archive, uh, in my studio. And uh, some of these pieces have smaller 
versions that collectors buy, especially, for example, the pendulums mm -hmm. or the needles. There are smaller versions that are at somebody's uh, ha ha home or an, at a an institution. So they exist somewhere, but the big installation exists when it's being uh, exhibited. Okay. Uh, let me ask you uh, the last question uh, in this episode, in this conversation. To what extent uh, does your work rely on grants and other sources? I don't apply to grants. I am lucky that I get invited and that I get paid most of the time. 80%, 90% of the time, except in, for example, when I do shows in Miami, I get paid for the production of the pieces. I get my art artist fees and I get to sell work. So currently my studio supports itself uh, with this uh, type of, uh, you know, because I get paid and because uh, the pieces are sold and uh, I don't have time to apply to grants, but I, I would like to do that. But uh, I don't like to spend most of the time writing. I prefer to spend most of my time actually creating artwork. Sure. We have come to the end of today's show. Thank you all so much for tuning in. You have been listening to the conversation with Miami-based sound artist Alba Triana, her work. Uh, has shaped the Miami art scene, but also Colombians scene and other places around the world and influenced many other artists around the United States and abroad. Thank you, Alba. Thank you for being uh, with us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, my listeners got a broad sense of what sound installations, sound sculptures are like. We will definitely continue following your work. Also, for more information about Alba Triana and her sound installations, check all the links in the description. To find more about Soundologia, hear more about our guests and listen to our previous shows, please visit us at soundologia.com. Also, do not forget to like our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram. I'm your host, Peja Kovacevic, and if you have any comments or recommendations, do not hesitate to write to us. Zoom the